Hello Watch Enthusiasts and welcome to Watch Chronicler. In today's episode, the first of quite a few speaking about Watches and Wonders 2021, I'd like to address the opening stars, let's say. These are the watches which everyone's been waiting for and which, quite honestly, if I'm going to produce any content about Watches and Wonders at all, have to be dispatched early on. These include the big Patek Philippe launches, Rolex, as well as a few others which I think are most relevant to most people's buying options and so I'm not including any of the really wonderful high horology options which are also present at the show, which will, I assure you, appear later on in my content about this particular exhibition, which I believe, due to its online nature, is now the largest watch show in history. But first of all, a bit of housekeeping. You see, because I'm not going to script any of these videos regarding Watches and Wonders, just because I'd like it to be off the cuff, a little bit more like the podcast I produce, and a little bit more spontaneous, I will be publishing this as not only videos on YouTube, but also as a secondary podcast, let's say, or in an audio form, in the same places as you would find Watch Chronicle Unscripted. And of course that will resume as will the normal videos once Watches and Wonders has passed, but for now I'd like to speak in this format, and I think the watch we need to begin with is a model from Bede Philippe which we've all been waiting for, but which has a few details which not that many people have picked up on, but suggests some interesting work within Bede Philippe. Of course, if you enjoy this content, then do please remember to like, share and subscribe, and of course to follow us on Instagram to always know about the latest podcasts, videos, and of course articles available on watchchronicler.com, which is the hub of Watch Chronicler Productions. But without any further ado, let's begin with a Patek Philippe which has to be spoken about in this video, because quite honestly it's on most people's lips, with various different interpretations of what it means for Patek Philippe as a brand and their future, particularly of this model, the Nautilus, but also as to whether Patek Philippe have simply been lazy with this watch. But I'll speak about that fully, speaking about the Patek Philippe Green Nautilus, the 5711 1A-014. Now on paper, this Nautilus is identical to the now discontinued blue stainless steel 5711, which was the face, you could say, of the Nautilus since the mid-2000s, because it represented a slightly larger, slightly more shapely case by comparison to older models, and really introduced a new generation to the Nautilus in that period, and has continued to be an extremely popular and almost inaccessible watch for most people. This means that dimensions remain the same at 43mm by 40mm by 8.3mm thick, and the movement remains the same as well, which is the calibre 26-330SC, which is the bread-and-butter Petit Philippe automatic movement, which now has hacking as of a few years ago when it was introduced silently by Petit Philippe to this watch, which previously didn't feature this rather rudimentary, you could say, function, and otherwise the watch remains pretty much unchanged, including the pretty antiquated bracelet and rather old-fashioned, let's say, deployant clasp. The biggest change is, of course, the dial colour, and in the past we've seen Petit Philippe introduce green, or rather surprisingly named greens, because in this case we have an olive green, but in the past they've introduced car keys and, and other greens of that nature, which go quite a long way beyond the vibrant and vivid greens which you would expect in a luxury watch. And green's been a very popular colour on luxury watches in the last few years, with Rolex notably spearheading this charge. Perhaps in the wrong direction, I personally don't like green dials, but frankly that's beside the point. What is the point though is that there are a few changes here which suggest some alterations which we might see in the successor to this watch, or this generation of watch, when this finally comes to an end after a year, because this model will be produced for another year until the full successor, we assume, to this generation of Nautilus is launched. And I must say this does remind me of Pagani, the car brand, who seem incapable of ending the lines of special editions of each model they produce. 
The first thing really to note is on the dial. Aside from that very vibrant green colour, which beyond taste is an irrelevance really to the fundamental aspects of the watch, and the changes here are to the date. Now quite a lot of people have commented on the new date window, because previously you just had a dial cut out with bevels, but now you have a proper polished rim, although quite honestly from my perspective it's not desperately well placed, but then that's more of a movement problem than a design issue. The aspect which hasn't been spoken about quite so much is that in the press photos, the numerals chosen for the date have changed. They have a very different form to those seen on the normal 5711, and resemble the bold date typeface chosen for the 40th anniversary Nautiluses back in 2016. The final element to consider is the fact that the 5711-1300A-001, I know a very catchy name, is a version of this watch which has a Pevy diamond bezel, and this is the first time that Pevy Philippe have included diamonds on a stainless steel watch, which certainly suggests a softening, let's say, to modern tastes. Not necessarily mine, but I can respect the fact that Pate Philippe have to move with the times, and these watches are priced accordingly, with the simple non-diamond version priced at £26,870, and the full all-singing, all-dancing version with the diamonds is £72,860, although I'm fairly sure nobody will end up paying that little for one of these watches, given the demand. Quite honestly, there's not an awful lot to say about these watches because, frankly, the objectives are clear. It's a celebratory piece for a generation of Nautilus which is going to come to a close, and because of its rarity being only produced for a year, and no doubt with a fully sold-out set of orders for that year, this is going to be a valuable collector's piece in the future, but fundamentally, horologically speaking, it's not really of any particular value as a new watch. The next brand to move to is Rolex. And Rolex have released a great slew of new watches, and in typical format, as we've seen in previous generations of releases, like at Baselworld, there would be a few new models, and then various new altered variations of existing ones. And the existing ones include, for example, a new Rolex Daytona with a meteorite dial, an assortment of pretty off-putting, it has to be said, diamond-encrusted date justs. And when I say off-putting, I think I should probably qualify that statement. I don't mean that diamonds are necessarily distasteful, but I think when you get to the point where a diamond-covered dial actually has diamonds placed underneath the markers just to fit more on the surface, you have to start asking yourself questions. And then there's an assortment of new date justs with dials which I'm slightly ashamed to say I love, with these palm designs which resemble the displays one often sees in authorised dealer windows. But I rather like the amalgamation of the date just as a dressy watch with Rolex's obvious outdoorsy connotations, you could say, with the Oyster case back in the 50s or the 60s. But all eyes have been on the new Explorer this year, and the Explorer wasn't actually expected to be replaced. The Explorer 2 was, and I will come on to that, because it's an important release, but the Explorer itself will be celebrating its anniversary in 2023, but they've chosen to update the collection after actually quite few years since the previous version, and they've dropped the diameter back down to 36mm, which it's a bit of a surprise, but then it does show that Rolex are beginning to follow what collectors want. Although you could argue that doing something unexpected was Rolex's greatest ability in the past, and maybe this is symptomatic of a new style of leadership at Rolex. Aside from this change, actually not an awful lot has been altered. There is no white dial, I'm afraid. They're still black lacquered dials. Although if you go for the new Rollersaw version, which is the yellow, gold and steel two-tone, which was previously released on the Sea Dweller, much to I think a lot of people's dismay, has now trickled into the Explorer collection, with this model now available in that configuration. And this also brings changes to the dial if you choose that option, 
because you have gold or yellow gold hands and yellow gold markers to complete the look. Of course, the design of this watch was never going to alter radically, but there are some lovely details, like a very thin brushed rim around the bottom edge of the polished bezel, which just adds a bit more detail. And then, of course, these watches have brand new movements, notably the Rolex Caliber 3230, which is a 70-hour power reserve 4 hertz movement with an all-new design, and with all of Rolex's most recent additions, like Nickel Phosphorus, Chronogy, Lightweight and A-Magnetic Escapement, the Blue Parachrom Hairspring, and of course all the various additions which we've seen over the last few years trickled into the Rolex collection. What's interesting here is that it sort of completes the package, because the Explorer in the past didn't have full anti-magnetism like the Air King, where the Air King didn't have the same shock resistance as the Explorer, but now that the Explorer has both, you could say that the Air King is becoming more and more irrelevant. Now the Explorer is a watch which you either like or you don't. For a lot of people, myself included, it's a little bit vanilla. It's a watch which doesn't really have an awful lot of character, in some people's opinions. Obviously that's not everyone's opinion and it shouldn't be, but I can certainly see the argument for this watch being a little bit dull. And this is why, much to my surprise, I actually quite like the two-tone version, because in a smaller 36mm size I doubt it'll be too ostentatious, and it has a sort of old-fashioned colonial-style explorer feel to it, which maybe I shouldn't like, but I do rather like the association which is inevitable with Rolex, especially with the Anglophile nature of its name and of its conception in the first place. These watches are priced at £5,150 for the steel version and £8,700 for the two-tone. Now the watch actually celebrating its 50th anniversary this year is the Explorer 2, and so a new version has been launched, as it's been in the collection for 10 years now, since it was increased in size from 40 to 42mm in 2011, with enhanced size to the dial markers, the hands, and of course an altogether broader shoulder format to the case. Now a lot of people have declared that this update of the watch, this 2021 version, has changed essentially nothing beyond the movement, but I actually think this is a more careful, more metered and more measured change than is seen with the Explorer 1. Now, let me explain. Firstly, the case is still 42mm, but has redesigned tapered lugs, which make the case appear certainly a bit smaller, although I suppose there is the danger that the whole thing will be more bulbous on the wrist by having narrower lugs in relation to the size of the central case. This watch also retains the same steel bezel as the previous version, which is something I'm quite pleased about, because my concern with the rumoured ceramic bezel is that this is designed to be a watch for a speleologist, for someone in a cave, and ultimately a bezel like this needs to be legible even if you've knocked the watch around, and the ceramic bezel, which is entirely exposed, let's not forget on this watch, would be very susceptible to chips, which I think is more of a problem than scratches to a steel bezel. The markers here, though, have changed somewhat, notably that the numerals have changed ever so slightly in format, and the dial markers have changed as well, but slightly thicker borders. Aside from that, the dial now has a more powerful chromolite luminous application on the markers and the hands, and the hands themselves have also been revised, because in the past the black version had black bases to the hands and then polished uppers, whereas now they are entirely polished. This has also changed on the white dial version, which now has matte black hands rather than glossy black hands. And through all of these changes, you can see that actually this new Explorer 2 is a much better watch for its intended function than its predecessor, and that's why I don't think it deserves any kind of flag. The movement inside it is the Calibre 3285, the same ones you will find in the GMT Master 2 nowadays, with the longer power reserve, new materials, new design, new engineering, and higher anti-magnetism than previous versions. It's the obvious choice, and it was always going to go into this watch. The pricing for this piece is £6,800, although I wonder whether it'll be more desirable than that, or less, depending upon how people perceive it during these first few days. 
The next brand to look at is Tudor, because inevitably this was going to be one of the darlings of the first day of Watches and Wonders, and very much fits within the list of brands which need to be dealt with immediately because of the sheer popularity of their watches. And Tudor has, as ever, focused on the Black Bay collection. In fact, they've only released Black Bay collections, with one exception. But to be quite honest, it's the Black Bay collection which has seen the most change, because everything else that has been released has been purely a dial change. Notably, the Black Bay Chrono has a new dial, as well as the bezel-less variations of the Black Bay. But the real change here is seen in two Black Bay 58s. And the 58 seems to be becoming the standard bearer for this collection, and the choice to make this watch the one to demonstrate new materials for Tudor really shows that this should be the core of the brand's thrust. Now, the construction of the two new models in this collection is unchanged. It's the same 39mm case as you would find on any other Black Bay 58, with the same vintage Submariner sort of feel, and the same slim case. The movement inside both of these watches is also essentially the same as the one in the Black Bay 58, which is the Caliber MT5400, one of Tudor's very well-designed, smaller in-house automatic calibers with a 72-hour power reserve, as well as chronometer certification and silicon components. The difference with these two new models, though, is that as a first for the Black Bay collection and something which was formerly seen on the Tudor North flag, is the inclusion of an exhibition case back so that you can actually see the movement through the back of the watch. Now this is something which goes against the general story of the Rolex Submariner, and by extension the Tudor Submariner, and I'll have to check this, because I'm not sure, but I wonder if these watches may be the first dive watches from the Hans Wilsdorf Foundation with an exhibition case back. If you know the answer to that, I think I do, but let me know if I'm wrong in the comment section below. The oddity here, though, is that neither of these watches have decorated movements, so you have an entirely undecorated movement visible through the case back, which seems surprising given the price of the first watch I'd like to speak about, which is £12,610, a comprehensively untudor sort of price. There is, though, very good reason for this. You see, this watch is an 18 karat gold Black Bay 58, which is all brushed in this execution, including brushed bevels down the edges of the lugs, and this watch also has a very strongly green dial and bezel insert. In fact, it's an almost toxic sort of green colour, which is very different to what we might have seen in the past from Tudor, including their Harrods edition Black Bay. On paper, though, aside from not being someone who particularly likes green dials, I have to say this watch actually doesn't represent bad value at all. Quite the contrary. This watch demonstrates that the Black Bay has grown into the modern Rolex Submariner in a world where the Rolex Submariner is, quite honestly, far too expensive to actually get hold of to make any real sense as an everyday watch. You see, consider the pricing. This 200-meter dive watch with a very good construction, very good build from a very reputable brand, also with a fantastic movement, is £12,600, whilst the Rolex equivalent is over £29,000. Now, that's an enormous difference for two watches which, on paper, are frankly pretty similar, and are, after all, produced by the same company. Something I do have to mention in passing is that this top-of-the-range model in the Tudor collection comes with one change to the package you receive when you buy the watch, which is that not only do you receive a rather lovely alligator leather strap, but you also receive a complementary woven strap, which is almost farcical, really, when the original Black Bay with the ETA movement also came with the fabric strap, as well as whichever bracelet or strap option you chose, but that hasn't been an option since Tudor went in-house with the Black Bay collection, so it's nice to see this coming back, even if it is only for the most expensive model they sell. Perhaps more interestingly, the second Black Bay released, which by the way is physically identical in terms of finishing and construction to the one I've just spoken about, is a new version in 925 sterling silver, which is not a material you would normally associate with watchmaking. 
Silver is in many ways an unlikely material for a watch. It's been used in the past, and Cartier have used it quite extensively with Vermeil cases, whereby the core was silver with a gold coating over the top. But this is a very, very new product, because they're offering a dive watch in a material which isn't exactly ideal for the function. You see, silver is a good and bad material to choose for a dive watch. Firstly, you're not going to get any corrosion, which is certainly a good thing. The case is going to be pretty much immune to damage from water and salt water, which is brilliant, really. The only problem is that it will tarnish, and tarnish quite aggressively. Notably, silver which is in contact with the elements will go black pretty quickly, although I'm sure Tudor will have chosen a particular alloy which will work best in the environment it's designed for. Although I suppose the danger is that without polishing the case, you'll end up with a very thick, black, and potentially staining coating over the surface, which also tends to develop a smell over time. Then again, if you're a fan of some of the Rolex watches we've seen appear at auction over the last few years, notably some real top lots, with gold cases which have tarnished into wonderful colours like purple and dark brown, then you might enjoy this watch an awful lot. And this is much more reasonably priced, because this watch costs £3,230, which is only 120 more than the Black Bay Bronze, although that is larger with its own unique dial. This watch instead receives a similar dial arrangement to other Black Bays, but in a new matte taupe colour. Altogether, it's no revolutionary change over the standard watch, and no revolutionary change even by comparison to the gold version, but it is nice to see Tudor offering something different, and taking full advantage of the fact that it doesn't have to be as serious as Rolex. Now a brand which I'd like to address in this video, and which I wasn't necessarily expecting to feature in this video, but I think is actually very relevant, is Cartier. Now Cartier have released an assortment of very appealing watches this year, and of course they are usually, and primarily, quite expensive watches. But Cartier is a unique brand because it's the fashion watch manufacturer of the high horology world. They produce wonderful watches which deserve the respect they receive, but which are fundamentally aesthetic watches, not mechanical watches, where the main focus and interest lies. And Cartier's most iconic watch must be the Tang. The Santos is of course older in terms of conception and perhaps a more distinctive look, but the traditional Louis Cartier Tang, with the rounded edges, the very delicate and symmetrical, you could say vertically as well as horizontally, format to the case is utterly timeless in a way which I don't think the Santos is. And this is a watch which is generally extremely expensive. Certainly if you want to get a gold model from the Louis Cartier collection, you'll have to spend well over £10,000 to acquire one. But back in 1977, there was an alternative which was launched in a period when, of course, the Swiss watch industry was experiencing serious instability, with quartz watches appearing on the scene from Japan. And this was the Must du Cartier. And the Must du Cartier was a watch which was designed to be a diffusion version of the tank, and achieved serious success in period. So in essence, this watch was more cheaply made, you could say, than the conventional Cartier tank. It was the first Cartier tank to be offered in steel, and also offered a much more approachable buying option. This wasn't necessarily a high-level luxury watch, but a watch which anyone within reason could aspire to eventually own. And I'm rather fond personally of the Must du Cartier, because a particular example in Vermeil, that's to say silver with a gold coating, has been moving its way around my family over the last few years, worn by my father and my mother almost the same amount each, given the fact that it's a watch which, even though a small size, looks great on anyone's wrist. Now, as per the aims of the collection to be approachable and not necessarily a great work of mechanical wonder, this watch is primarily quartz. Most watches produced will be quartz, and there are three sizes for this watch, the small, 
the large and the extra large, with both the small and large having a simple quartz movement. Then, if you pay a bit more, that's to say, with opening prices for the quartz being about 2,000 euros, and you have to pay at least 3,000 to get an automatic one, you could have the extra large with the Caty Calibre 1847 MC, which is an automatic movement with the date, 4 hertz beat rate, 42 hour power reserve, and certainly everything you would expect for the price from a brand like Cartier. But honestly, with these watches, there is absolutely no shame in buying the quartz model. The standard version of this watch is a very traditional looking piece indeed. It has a primarily polished case with some brushed elements, and also keeps the lines of Louis Cartier almost to a T, with all of the details you would expect. But there have been some cost-saving elements, like for example the blue cabochon on the crown, which is not sapphire on this particular watch, but is instead a synthetic gem. Even so, it has the iconic Roman numeral dial, the Ardion buckle, and is a generally modern watch with a quick change, or what they call quick switch, to change straps and bracelets easily and without tools, which I think makes sense given the demographic which is likely going to be buying this watch. But there are several alternatives, notably the monochromatic model, which has received an enormous amount of praise, and which is offered in, I believe, only one size, costing €2,280. This model is designed to pay homage to the originals launched in the late 1970s, and these quartz models, notably these are only available in quartz form, are offered in steel with glossy, plain, simple dials, simply signed Cartier, and with the traditional tank hands. These dials are available in three colours, blue, green, and burgundy, with matching straps. And these are unbelievably elegant watches. I would say these are wonderful looking watches, in fact. And the general design is timeless. The fact that there are no numerals means that there is absolutely nothing to anchor this watch to any particular aesthetic. It is simply elegant, and I'm sure beautifully made. Of course, these watches don't represent brilliant value, but I don't think that's the point. Finally, there's the Solar Beat model, which is perhaps the most forward-looking, and this is offered in two sizes of quartz, priced at €2,070 and €2,180. These watches are somewhat different, and they look almost identical to the normal version of the Mustocatia in this 2021 form, except they have a unique movement, which is called Solar Beat, and this is essentially a solar movement. It provides you with 16 years of autonomy before needing to go back to Katia to be serviced and updated, and it uses photovoltaic cells placed underneath the numerals, which are perforated incredibly finely so that you don't actually see it when you look at the watch, and allow the watch to recharge itself in the sun and be a generally more eco-friendly option to the normal quartz version. When paired with the option for a plant-based cruelty-free strap, I can see that this watch is directed towards a very particular market. It's designed to access a modern, young market, which I suppose is exactly the market this collection was meant to access in the late 70s. It's designed to be the watch for someone who wants to own a Cartier tank, but isn't yet in a position to do so. And that's why, as much as I may love Cartier releases over the past few years, like the Demoiselle Santos last year, which was bite the back of your hand beautiful, I think this is the most important watch they're going to release this year, because it broadens the brand in a very impressive way. But what do you think of these first, and perhaps most pertinent, releases of Watches and Wonders? I think they suggest some very different directions, but a generally positive note, in terms of what we can look forward to throughout the rest of the year, but more importantly throughout the rest of the show over the next nine days. So thank you very much for watching. If you enjoyed this video and podcast, if of course you're listening to it, then please do remember to like, share and subscribe, and follow us on whichever podcast player you enjoy using to keep these videos coming. Thank you very much for watching. This is Armon from watchchronicle.com. Out.